0: Uh, in the text this morning. So let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so very much for your son Jesus that you sent to come and die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for your great, great love that you've lavished upon us in your son Jesus. But we also thank you for who you are, that you are all of you. And uh, we also thank you that you've revealed all of you to us that we can know you, not exhaustively, but we can know you, and we can know things about you, and we thank you for all that you've revealed. We ask, Father, that as we think about this text and about this subject this morning, that our minds would be right, that we would walk away thankful, that we would walk away grateful for your love and your mercy and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and love you in your Son's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term armchair, right? Like armchair theologian, armchair historian, armchair whatever. It, that speaks of a person who, who hasn't been formally trained, but but they're pretty knowledgeable or they act knowledgeable. <laughs> they can actually not be not knowledgeable at all, but they, they talk about a subject and, and they talk about, A lot of things about that subject. And so there's such a thing as an armchair theologian. So this is somebody who, though they've never been to Bible school, they have lots of thoughts about theology. Some of it's good. Sometimes that's a really good thing. Uh, I think that there's a lot of armchair theologians in this room and praise the Lord for you. There are others who They might not be sitting on the right kind of chair as they're studying. We'll we'll say that Uh, they're maybe not the best kind of theologian. And and what I mean by this, what I mean by a good theologian opposed to a bad theologian is this. Is that the, the perspective I have and the thoughts that I say and the way that I talk about God, the way I talk about Jesus, the way I talk about others comes from God's word, right? And it is close to what God's word has to say. There are some people who are really good at that. There are some people that are really bad at that. Not bad in the fact that they're able to articulate it, but that they are, the things that they say do not come from God's word. They, they come from their own perspective or something else. That, that's a bad theologian. A good theologian is one that's biblical. One of the downfalls of an armchair theologian that's a bad one, that, that doesn't look at God's word it becomes abundantly clear that they're a bad theologian when they talk about some of the attributes of God. This morning we're going to talk about the wrath of God and I find that most theologians you can really tell what they're about when they talk about this subject of the wrath of God. Now we're going to discuss this more but I just want to I want to say this at the outset so that we're all kind of in the same wavelength. When we talk about the attributes of God, we are talking about God who is perfect. We don't have to add anything to him. And we don't have to take away anything from him. When he, when he acts, it is perfect. He is perfectly these things. There's nothing. He doesn't have to grow. And he doesn't have to repent. Okay? Okay? So God is perfectly loving. He is perfectly merciful, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly wrathful. Now, when God acts, in a sense, every single one of his actions exhibits all of his attributes. And when he does a thing, it doesn't infringe on the other attributes. So for example, if we were to think of Caleb Hilbert's wrath. Nine times out of ten, when I am wrathful, I am devoid of all those other attributes, right? I'm not acting in a loving way. So it's not as if my love and my wrath coincide with each other. One gets pushed out of the way and the other becomes predominant. With God, that's not the case. Every time he acts, he is acting with the fullness of his being. And none of those attributes are being diminished. So when he acts lovingly, it doesn't mean that he's diminishing his wrathfulness. They're acting in concert with each other. Perfect example of this is the cross. When you look at the cross, you can literally see all of the attributes of God on display. Perfectly. In fact, you look at any act that God does, and you can see all of his attributes. Now, there are times in the midst of these actions of God that we focus on one, or he may highlight one of his attributes. This is important. This doesn't mean that all the others are absent. What this means is, number one, what we're thinking about and what what really ministers to us is that particular aspect of God and a particular aspect of his character. When God highlights an attribute, that's because you and I need to see that attribute to help us live in this life. So for example, you're going to find that God highlights his holiness a lot. We need to know that God's holy. We need to know that. He highlights his love. We need to know that he's loving. He highlights his wrath. We need to know that God is righteous and wrathful. So as we talk about the wrath of God this morning, I want us to understand that it's not just the wrath of God that we're talking about here. We're talking about the totality of his actions, right? When God is wrathful, it, it, it comes with his righteousness. It, it, it implies his love and his mercy and his grace. And that's important for us to have this full perspective, so, this morning, what I really want to highlight is God's grace amid, in the midst of, talking about his wrath. I want to talk about God's grace amid humanity's sinfulness. I want to talk about God's grace in humanity's suppression of God's truth. These are three things that we're going to see from Romans 1.18. So, turn with me to Romans 1.18. We are entering into the body of Paul's argument, and Paul, like a good lawyer, like a good logician, states his point, and then we'll go on to explain his point, and that is what he's doing in Romans 118, and so we're going to spend today just talking about his point, and then we're going to see as he develops this point in the next three chapters, But in order for us to fully understand what Paul is meaning, allow me to read from verse 16, and then I'll read verse 18. So notice what Paul says to the church, to the believers in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, For faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, first of all, just start off. Notice in those passages, it talks about the power of God, talks about the the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. In Bible study, when you see... Three phrases that's, that give a, a, an attribute and then says, and says almost the same exact thing, but, but changes some of the words, right? So power, righteousness, wrath of God. You should take note of that because he's talking about these different attributes of God, these different actions of God. And so when I say, when we're talking about the wrath, it's not just the wrath of God because just before it, in the context, in the mind of us as the reader, we're already thinking of the power of God. We're already thinking of the righteousness of God. And we're thinking of this in the context of the gospel to believers. So you must understand that when we get to verse 18, we're not talking about, per se, everyone else outside. This isn't Paul just saying, you know, I just need to get a couple political things off my chest this morning. And I want to talk about those dirty, rotten sinners. I just got to tell you how bad they are. And then I'll just talk about how great Jesus is. No, no, no. The Apostle Paul's not doing that. You know what the Apostle Paul is doing? He is reminding us as believers. Because the point is for us to be encouraged and grow in our faith. He's reminding us of where we come from. He's reminding us of God's grace. And sometimes we need to get hit in the face of who we used to be, of our inability to save ourselves of how depraved we were so that when we see then the marvelous grace of God we go amen so very thankful for what you've done he has to expose to us our past now this morning in Sunday school Greg was talking about the exact same thing this morning in Sunday school we didn't plan it this way but that's okay he said the same exact thing, but just a different passage. And I want to show you that this is, this is the Apostle Paul. This is how he talks, okay? Uh, uh, so go with me just quickly to the book of Ephesians. I, I want to show you the, what I think is the, the way that the Apostle Paul says this and what, what he's intending with Romans 1, 2, and 3. So just go with me to the book of, of Ephesians chapter 2. So just like the book of Romans and Ephesians chapter 1... Paul talks about the gloriousness of the gospel. He talks about how it's by God's power that we are saved and given the righteousness of Christ. He talks about this glorious salvation that we have. He talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He talks about how as a believer, we all, we all, every single believer receives the same exact blessings. There isn't two sets of blessings. That's a popular teaching today. Very popular in a lot of churches. There's a set of blessings for the platinum members. And then there's a set of blessings for the super members. And then there's the basic blessings for the people that just bought the ticket. And they talk about it in this tiered form. The Bible doesn't talk about God's blessings this way. As a believer in Christ, you've been, giving, you've been given all the blessings You have as much blessing in Christ as I do. So he talks about this glorious blessing. And then Paul reminds us of those, of our terrible past. It's kind of like looking at our old yearbook photos from high school past. And we look at those and we go, Oh, I thought my parents loved me. Why would they let me walk out of the house looking like that? And we look at it. And then somebody says, oh, let me see. And you throw the yearbook out the window and go, a bird took it. Magic. Well, I don't want you to see that. I don't want you to see what I used to. I don't want you to see the, the weird thing that I used to do with my hair. I don't want you to see my past. Here, Paul opens up the yearbook and shows us our old yearbook photos. And it's not great. Okay. So notice what he says in verse verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. And the spirits that now work in sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. You see. We all once lived under this. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 1. We all used to be under the wrath of God. So the description that Paul gives in Romans. Romans 1, 2, and 3 is, in a sense, a longer, longer discussion of what he's talking about when he talks about people walking according to the course of the world, okay? And, and he's going he's to dive into this course of the world and what this looks like. He's even going to go even beyond what he does here because he's going to talk about how we used to live in the course of the world in different cultures. One culture that doesn't necessarily have the Bible as its base And is just full out idolatrous, and then he's going to talk about another culture in chapter two, which did have the Bible, the Old Testament, and how even in that culture you still walked according to the course of this world, even though you thought of yourself as not. And then, if you happen to be in any of those other cultures that he doesn't, then he just then broad brush strokes then talks about all of humanity. So that's what he does. But notice in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. I understand this, this as not that we were kids walking around loving the fight. But, but I understand this as we were children under the wrath of God. Right? Every single one of us was under the wrath of God. And then he says, like the rest of mankind. You understand? We just, we used to be like them. Maybe a little bit different, but really the same. And then in verse four, but God, this morning we talked about the gloriousness of just these two words, right? And in my, my opinion, this is the gospel in two words, But God, all of our life has that. We could sit here and talk about all of the stuff in our past. And then there's that moment of, but God, but God, right? But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, it's the same thing. He's saying the same thing, just longer in the book of Romans. So when we get to Romans 1.18, when we see the wrath of God, this is not written necessarily so that we can throw this at people on, on on, on chats on social media. This is for us to remember who we were, to remember that we are saved by the grace of God. Right? Now, it's important for us to understand this, because if I don't have this background, if I think of myself as being generally good, generally being born with a right relationship with God, and then I hear about the grace of God, sometimes I feel like, yeah, I almost deserved God's grace. Right? I almost deserved Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. That is not the inclination of the book of Romans, and that's a very dangerous position and a very dangerous temptation that we all face. So, let's kind of get into the text. So, in Romans 1:18, let's first look at God God's grace in the midst of his wrathful righteousness because he starts off with the word for. So, I think the for that he's talking about is he's explaining this concept of the righteousness of God, right? So, in the gospel, the righteousness God the righteousness of God is revealed. He's going to reveal this righteousness in several different ways, okay? And this is the first color, right, of the prism of God's righteousness that we see. It's the the one that's the most natural that we have to begin with as we see ourselves, right? So, for the wrath of God. Now, this word for wrath, it's it's an interesting word. Uh, Today, we have a word that sounds exactly like the Greek word, and it means something completely different this is the greek word orge i bet you can imagine all the different words that sound like orge so if you don't know any of those other words i suggest you go home and ask your mom mom what word in the english language sounds like this that's very different from what is said here now the word in greek orge means this <laughs> it means this this Fully giving of oneself passionately. That, that's the idea. That, that's the main idea behind this word, passionately. And it's used in the Greek of somebody that's given themselves passionately with, with, with the idea of anger, right? I'm passionately giving myself to something. So, so, so it, it's not just a passive anger. It's not like he's driving down the road and happens to see something and goes, really grinds my gears, doesn't really grind his gears, but it does. It's just annoying. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this full, passionate anger that flows from the character of God, that flows from the righteousness of God, and flows from the holiness of God, that he cannot stand something that is not like him, that is something that is opposite of him something that is so detrimental to a person that draws them away from him, that destroys what he makes. Now, this wrath is unlike the wrath of Caleb Hilbert or the wrath that we might see in other people. Sometimes when people are wrathful, they almost black out with rage, don't they? Have you ever been around somebody. They got so angry. They really know what they were saying. They really don't know what they were doing. They start doing stuff. They start saying stuff. It's almost out of control anger. Not governed by anything. That's not God's wrath. In fact, in fact, when you understand God's wrath, you go, that's even scarier. You don't, I'd almost rather have a God that just went off. This is a full-minded From his character and love of goodness. Of what is good. Looking at the sinfulness of man. And mindfully governed by all of his attributes. Is angry. Is upset. Is offended. This is talking about a, 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 a holy offense. Against God. Now. Let's be mindful of this. There's lots of things in the Bible that describe, that that warrant God's wrath. Unfortunately, we do a lot of them. Still, today, as a believer, right? So there's things like disbelief. That warrants God's wrath or rebellion, idolatry, syncretism. Do you know what syncretism is? That's taking one belief from somebody else and adding that to God's word to create something that looks like the word, but's really not. He doesn't like that. Neglect of justice, right? When we don't act in a way that's just and kind. But we have to understand this, friends. Even though we were under the wrath of God because we were born sinners born with this guilt of sin. You have to understand the context of what he just said about the gospel and the power of God for salvation. Salvation is saving us from our sins, securing our salvation, securing our right relationship with him that we can eternally be with him. It's the forgiveness of our sins. So you understand it's not just that God woke up angry and he's just upset. It's because of the actions of humanity. The sinfulness of mankind in all of its forms. And it's a full conscious anger and offense that's driven from his sense of right and wrong. From his sense of loving what is good. From his, from his own being. But friends, it is not devoid his mercy and his love because we're going to find out that all who are in Christ Jesus are what? No longer under condemnation. We are rescued from the wrath, from the judgment of God. But we need to understand we all, it doesn't matter, you, everyone born is under the wrath of God unless they place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, you are under the wrath of God. He is offended. He's offended by your attitudes, offended by your actions, offended by your thoughts. How little or how big, it doesn't matter. We need to understand this. We, we need to see this. Now, now Paul wants us to, to, to realize the, the seriousness of this situation. The seriousness of this situation. It's not just that he's he's, he's offended and he just hasn't told anybody. Notice what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed. This word implies that it's continually being revealed. They are continually seeing it. The world continually knows that God is offended. They see it. They know it. And he reveals it. And notice, he reveals it from heaven. This is a divine thing. It flows from his divine attribute of goodness. It doesn't flow from our definition of goodness, it flows from his definition. And he reveals it. So the question is how does he reveal it? And my my answer is in all the ways that he reveals things. In all the ways that God reveals, he reveals his displeasure and his offense. To man that were under the wrath of God. Now, Paul will discuss this. He's going to go in great detail of how this is revealed. It's revealed in creation. We're going to see that next week. It's revealed in times where God turns people over to certain sinful habits. Now, I know that when we get to that text, we're only going to be focusing in on one sin. But you have to understand That goes for every sin. It's not just one particular sin which God turns people over. I've met several people that are turned over to particular sins. And it is only by the grace of God that they are rescued from that. That itself is a punishment from God. How else does he reveal this? In the conscience of man, right? He reveals, and and when God creates us and puts us together, there is this judge inside of us. This little, we call it the little voice, right? That tells you you're doing right, you're doing wrong. Now that can be manipulated. We'll talk about the full complexity of that. But that also talks about the judgment of God. How else does he do that? Through his word. The apostle Paul is going to go on a master class on proving how sinful we were outside of Jesus Christ and how incapable we are of saving ourselves apart from his grace. And he's going to use the Old Testament to do it. How else do we know that we're under the wrath of God? Through the gospel. It implies it. You need to be saved. Saved from what? From the punishment of sin. How are you saved from that? By placing your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So this wrath of God is revealed. Even though we know the backdrop of his grace, we need to know, I was under the wrath of God. Before I placed my faith in Jesus, I offended him deeply. He was angry and furious, righteously. Now notice, notice where his anger is channeled, right? Right? Notice that there is still grace amid humanity's sinfulness. And notice how Paul describes the sinfulness. Now, these are going to be large terms that he uses. And as we'll look, we'll see how he kind of colors these phrases in. But notice these two phrases he uses. He says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all. Circle that word all. Circle it if you circle your Bible. If you take in notes, write a big old all and circle it. And realize this, when he says all, he means every single one. It doesn't matter if it's small. It doesn't matter if it's big. It fits in the category of all. And when we see what the categories he gives, you will then begin to understand, whoa. Even though I grew up in the church, before I knew Jesus... I was a pretty bad hombre, right? I was depraved, incapable of saving myself, sinful. Now, I might not have fully expressed my sinfulness, right? I was never part of a Guatemalan motorcycle gang selling meth. But I don't have to be to be a sinner under God's wrath. Praise the Lord if you've never had to experience that. Praise the Lord. That's part of God's grace. Praise the Lord if he's rescued you from that. That's part of his grace. The point that Paul's making is not for us to start looking at each other and comparing our sin list to see who's a better sinner. The point is for us to look back at our life and go, I was under the wrath of God. I was a sinful person, incapable of saving myself. And it was solely by the grace of God and his love that I now am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This helps us in our evangelism, by the way. This helps us look at people and go, they don't know Jesus, they're under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter how righteous they look on the outside, doesn't matter how good they look on the outside, doesn't matter how bad they look, they're incapable of saving themselves. And we're going to learn that there's like a spiritual Stockholm syndrome, that they're in love with their captor, they love what they're doing. They don't even know how dangerous and detrimental their actions are. They don't understand the situation of their soul. So it gives us empathy for them. It gives us motivation to talk to them. It's one of those motivations that goes, I I don't really care if they make fun of me. I I don't really care if they say bad things. They're under the wrath of God. They, They need to know. It helps us when we pray for them. It helps us go, God, I understand. I understand how bad they are. I understand the serious condition of their soul. I understand this. I see it from your perspective. I understand how bad self-righteousness is. I understand how full debauchery is. So I don't, I don't sit in a holy huddle and just talk about how much better I am, which we are prone to do prone to beat our chests because by God's grace we might be a little bit better but it causes us to say man except for God's grace I would be there too now let's look at this right it's against all and then here's the first word on godliness or godlessness this word really speaks of a lack of respect for God this word speaks of a sacrilegious acts. It, it speaks of a, of a heart that doesn't want to submit to, a, to, to God. It, it speaks to one that, that doesn't want God in their life. It speaks to one who, who doesn't care if God is in their life and doesn't care if they say things or do things that offends him. It, it speaks of, a, of an attitude. It, it speaks of an attitude of not wanting to submit to God. It, it speaks of a stiff heart. It speaks of a stiff neck. It speaks of somebody that even though they might hear the truth, and even though they might be convinced that that is right, they will still willfully say, No, I will not submit. And if I get a chance to talk to God, I will give him a piece of my mind. We all know people like that. We all know arrogant sinners who think that they could argue their case to God. There are people even inside of churches that think that they don't need to submit and can argue their case to God. Friends, you and I used to be like this. We used to be like this. I have no fear of God in my eyes. I don't have to submit to him. I can establish my own righteousness by myself. I don't need to submit to him. I only live once and I'm going to live it to the fullest. All of these are that type of attitude. So any attitude that has that, any attitude that looks like that is part of this godlessness. Now there's another term. Notice the next term. He says, on righteousness... Well, this is, this is anything that's opposite of God's nature, opposite of God's word. Anything you say, think, or do that goes against God's word or against his nature. This speaks of any act of transgression, any act of stepping over the line. This, even, this is even whether you know it's wrong or not. This speaks of anything that you do that does not match the standard of righteousness. Would anybody like to share this past week a little bit of their own righteousness? We have lots of it, right? We'd be here for hours because we all have done lots of little things. This is is where the wrath of God is focused, on the sinfulness and depravity of man. But you have to remember, this is why Jesus came to die, was to save us from all of this godlessness and unrighteousness. Allow me just to take a little bit more of your time. I I would like to just rabbit trail just for one second here because I, I really want us to understand where we come from before we know Jesus Christ. And I want to kind of describe what this looks like. So go with me to 1 John. I just want to briefly show you this passage. As Greg was talking this morning, this passage came to my mind. And I thought, this this is exactly what, what it looks like to walk according to the course of this world. This is what it looks like to be godless. This is what it looks like to be unrighteous. So 1 John chapter 2, go with me to verse 15. Notice what he says. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... So this is describing worldliness. This is describing that course of action. This is describing that godlessness is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is the depravity of man. It's that inward desire to do the things that God does not want to do. It's that seeing of those things outside externally, those temptations And that desire that comes from wanting to do those things. And then that pride of life that says, I'm okay. I'm okay continuing doing this. You know how righteous I am? Do you know how good I am? This is what this looks like. Now notice, there's one more thing that we have to look at in Romans 118. Thank you for letting me take just a short little detour there to show you that. But notice the next thing that He says, so, so this is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And notice it's of men. This doesn't mean that men are sinful and ladies are just perfect. Here, what he means by men, culturally, we have to remember this is a language. He means humanity. That's what he means. He means humanity. This, this is what is universal amongst humanity. Whether they've heard the gospel or not, they are unrighteous. Whether they've heard the gospel or not, they're ungodly. Now, there's something else that these men do that you and I used to do. This is something that sweet little kids do, right? They do this. Notice the next thing, right? There's grace amidst this next thing, right? There's grace amidst the suppression of truth. Because notice what it says. It says, Who by their unrighteousness. So coming from that unrighteousness, right? Coming from that rat's nest of depravity. Th- this is what's motivating them, right? They're willfully doing this. This is not an intellectual problem. This is a willful problem, right? They're willfully doing this because of their unrighteousness. What is their unrighteousness fueling them to do that, that, that makes God upset? These people are willfully notice suppressing the truth. See, it's not just that we're sinful. It's that we don't want to listen. I'll be honest. As a dad, I've seen this numerous times. My kids know this. You want to get me super upset? Completely ignore what I'm saying to you and then willfully do the opposite, trying to forget what I just said to you drives me nuts, angry. Could you imagine perfect anger in this situation? And could you imagine having all the world do this all the time in different measures, in different ways, different times? Can you understand the gravity of this? Can you understand the willful disobedience and rebellion of people who suppress the truth? It makes sense that God is offended. It makes sense that it's wrathful. What doesn't make sense is that he then would offer a way of salvation. That, that's why he's better than us. He's gracious. But this part makes absolute perfect sense. Now, this word for suppression, it, Oh, you almost get the picture of somebody putting their hands on somebody else and trying to drown them. Or, or, or you get the picture of somebody having a giant spring. And they're trying to hold down that spring as long and as hard as they can. And they're trying to do everything they can do to hold down this spring. Now, the spring wants to jump back up. But they're doing everything they can do to keep it down. They don't want it to come up. They don't want it to ever come up. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. They don't want, they don't want anything to... to To speak against themselves, their self-righteousness, their ungodliness. And so what are they doing? They're holding it down and they're pushing it down with all their might. And And what are they suppressing? The truth. The truth of what? God's truth. God's truth about what? About who he is. God's truth about what? About who they are. God's truth about what? About who Jesus Christ is about righteousness, about all of this. Now, friends, you and I used to do this. Even sweet little Caleb in Sunday school, in Iwana, as a cubby, if you can imagine Caleb Hilbert as a cubby or as a Sparky, Caleb once was one. Even Caleb as a cute little cubby was suppressing the truth suppressing the truth and all, all that I knew and all of my unrighteousness and all of my ungodliness. I was suppressing the truth. I remember going to Cubbies not to learn about Jesus, but I might walk away with the little bear, take him home for a week. It was the greatest joy of my life. Then when I became a Sparky, guess what the greatest joy was? Three things. One, I earned a Wannabucks so I could buy gum, which my mom didn't buy for me at the store. Two, I get to take home a little sparky. Once again, the pride and joy of my life was that little doll. And three, if I memorize enough verses, I get a I get a boxcar, right? One of those blocks of wood for free, and I might win a trophy. I didn't care a lick about my sinfulness. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about any of that. It was all for those goals. You see, little sinful Caleb suppressing the truth. I memorized the verses. I couldn't even tell you what they meant. Because I didn't care. I didn't care. To me, they were just words. I might as well have been memorizing Shakespeare. Didn't matter. Oh, but there was that one day when the Juana when the, when the teacher said something super strange from the book of Romans. And it was, it was over this issue. This issue. And my little heart was pricked. It was, we were talking about how God loves us and he wants us to be in heaven. And then, then the teacher just said a passing comment, but you can't. Wait, what? What? God loves me. He wants me to be with him, but I can't. It was that little thing that pricked the heart of Caleb Hilbert. All of a sudden, I forgot about every single race. I forgot about that stupid little doll. I forgot about the candy at the store. All I was concerned about was, how do I, how do I be right with God? Now, I'm not saying that after I placed my faith in Jesus that night, that I didn't care about that stupid little doll and that I wasn't trying to still do some of those same old things. I still did those things. Does that make God happy that I did those things now that I'm a believer? Of course not. Why would He be happier if I do sin when I'm a believer opposed to when I'm not a believer? That doesn't make sense. Of course. But now, as a believer, I now had tools to act in a righteous way because little Caleb became a new creature. Little Caleb is now in Christ given the righteousness of Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now it's a different thing. If I don't understand this then the part that comes after this it's possible I go I kind of deserved it. It's possible to go yeah it's, it's cool it's not great it's possible for us to become self righteous. It's possible for us to think that this was somehow our own doing. This is a vital piece for us as Christians. And, and, and while it's talking about the wrath of God, and while we, we are sitting here thinking about people that we know that are under the wrath of God, hopefully you look at this and go, yeah, but he saved me. He saved me. This is, this is no longer a description of me. Because of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And it's this, it's this that should motivate me to live for him. It's this that should motivate me to spend time in the word. It's this that should motivate me to spend time in prayer. It's this that should motivate me to come to church and fellowship. It's this that should motivate me to share the gospel with my neighbors. You too can experience this. And how great is this. This is like all cream, right? Right? This is, this is the whole shebang. This is the whole smorgasbord. So may we be grateful. May we be thankful for God's grace even to terrible, rotten sinners like us. May he be honored and glorified. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you saved us from your wrath, that you saved us from this divine offense that we've, that we've racked up against you, and you've done this solely on the basis of your grace and of your mercy. We thank you so very much for everything you've given us, for all that you've blessed us with. Father, may we, may we just glory in the gospel. May we just rest here. May we understand these things so that we can praise you and thank you. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen.